Well, good morning, Harvest. It's great to be here. It's great to open up God's word and share God's word with you all. But I'd like to actually start things this morning, if I may, on a sad note. On January 17th, 1966, Simon and Garfunkel released a song called I Am a Rock. The lyrics go something like this. A winter's day in a deep and dark December, I am alone gazing from my window to the streets below on a freshly fallen silent shroud of snow. I am a rock. I am an island. I've built walls, a fortress steep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving. I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. Don't talk of love. Well, I've heard that word before. It's sleeping in my memory. I won't disturb the slumber of feelings that have died. If I never loved, I never would have cried. Now, if you've heard this song, you know it kind of starts slow and light, but then it quickly builds and it's peppy, which is ironic because if you just read the lyrics, that's a sad song. A song of somebody who has been hurt and so they've retreated, isolated, built walls around their heart to keep from being hurt. And I'm sure that describes many people in our world today. But sadly, I'm afraid it probably describes many people in the church today. When we're hurt, we're tempted to be isolated, tempted to retreat, tempted to tell ourselves, maybe not with these words, but with similar words, that I am a rock. I don't need anyone. And if we're Christians, maybe we're tempted to say, I don't need the church. I've got God. Just me and God. We're good. But you see, there's a problem with that. Last week, we looked at the church as a community. We're on a Christian journey. And this journey is meant to be done together. We're not meant to go it alone. And despite whatever hurt we may have faced, we're not meant to do this Christian journey alone. We're in the book of Philippians. We started last week a series called Joy in the Journey. Today, I want to emphasize something that, it's a similar theme that we started last week. It's emphasized in our passage again this week that we're in this journey together. This is not you and God. This is you, God, and his people. So this morning, we're going to look at the fact that we are a partnership. We are a partnership. Maybe you heard it in the words as Hillel was reading the text that he's thankful for his partners. Beloved, 
we are partners. And so this morning, I want to look at four ways that we treat our partners well. Four ways that we treat our partners well from first or from Philippians chapter one, verses three through 11. So if you will, if you have your Bible open, please join me in chapter three. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Point number one this morning, be thankful for your partners. Be thankful for your partners. How do we treat our partners well? Be thankful for your partners. Be thankful for your fellow believers. Be thankful for your brothers and sisters. Paul writes, I thank my God in my remembrance of you, always an airy prayer of mine. Whenever I'm praying about you, I thank God for you is what he's saying. He's saying. Every time I pray for you, I thank God for you. I'm so thankful for you, my partners. Do you thank God for your partners? Do you thank God for your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? Partnership. We are in a partnership. That word partnership, the Greek is koinonia. Koinonia, and it means a close association involving mutual interest and sharing, association, communion, fellowship. The word is often translated in the New Testament as fellowship. We are a fellowship. It's not the the verb form of fellowshipping, but it's the noun that we are a fellowship. We are partners. In fact, this word koinonia, it's the same word that's that's used in Acts 2.42 that describes the birth of the church. You might remember in Acts chapter 2, that that is the, the famous chapter where the disciples, now apostles, were filled with the Holy Spirit and, and flames like tongues came down and they were able to speak in different languages to thousands of people who were present and everyone heard the message of the gospel in their own language. And that day, Peter stood up and proclaimed a sermon and 3,000 people got saved. And all of a sudden, boom, we had a church. That's the passage. And in Acts 2.42, it reads like this. And they devoted themselves, this is after the sermon, the 3,000 people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the koinonia, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. One of the cool things about Acts 2.42 is it is biblical support for two of our pillars and biblical support for our small groups. Biblical support for two of our pillars. See, you've seen the pillars. You see, the, you see the posters out there in the foyer that we have four pillars, preaching, worship, prayer, and evangelism. That's not something that, you know, we just kind of sat around one day and thought, hey, these would be good. That comes from God's word. What we do here as a church, what we believe the church should be about comes from God's word. And two of these, you see them here. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We believe in the proclamation of God's word. Amen. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and later on down at the end, and the prayers. We believe in unceasing prayer. We believe God hears our prayers. We believe God works through our prayers. So this is biblical support for two of our pillars, but it's also biblical support for our small groups. You see that they they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which was done in individual homes. 
We do small groups because the early church did small groups. We do small groups because we want to be a church, not, not a church that has small groups as an option, but a church of small groups where we meet together on Sunday morning as one big group and then we have all of us in small groups throughout the week. That's what we want to be about because that's what God's church was about. But they devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to each other. They devoted themselves to the koinonia, the partnership. Why? Because a partnership is about something that shares something. A partnership is about two or more parties that share something and we share the gospel. We share the gospel. We share the gospel If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, we share that, we have that in common. And that is a beautiful thing. We are partners because we've been brought together by the blood of Christ. So we share the gospel as our salvation, but we also share the gospel as our responsibility. We've been given the gospel as a responsibility to take it to a world that desperately needs it. Stephen J. Lawson, commentator on Philippians, he writes this. This joint participation in the gospel is what all believers share together. We have collectively put our trust in the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As fellow believers, it is incumbent upon us collectively to take this message to the world. We are in the same boat, engaged in the same profession, and we have a great deal in common with our business partners, no matter what the differences are in our languages, cultures, and experiences. We are partners. You may even have noticed in that quote, he used the term business partners. Now, I know that might kind of seem a little cold or a little, maybe a little professional. After all, we're a family. We have relationships. And that word business partner, that seems maybe a little too formal. But remember, we're in this journey together. And we've come together, partnered over the gospel. Are you thankful for your partners? As you look around in this room, are you thankful for the people that are in this room? Now, I'm not naive. Well, not always. I know that partners don't always get along. Sometimes when I think of that word partner, my mind kind of goes back to some of the old westerns. You know, howdy partner. And I was reminded this week of the movie The War Wagon with John Wayne and Kirk Douglas. Who's seen that? Great movie. In The War Wagon, John Wayne's character and Kirk Douglas's character, they become partners to try to take back what was stolen from John Wayne's character. And if you've seen the movie, you know they don't always get along. They butt heads a lot throughout the movie. Because it's easier to find something wrong with somebody than it is to be thankful for them. As we are in this Genesis 3 world, as we are stuck in our sins, it's so much easier for for me to look out and and to see somebody, and it's so much easier for me to find something to complain about them. It's so much easier for me to see flaws. It's so much easier for me to point out weaknesses. But Paul doesn't do that in the opening of this letter. He says, I'm thankful for you. The Philippian church wasn't perfect. But Paul writes, I am thankful for you. Every time I pray about you, I'm thankful for you. And guess what it does? It fills me with joy 
We talked about how joy is a theme that runs through this entire book. He says, it fills me with joy. We talked about last week how Philippians was a church that, that Paul loved. He loved the people of this church, and when he thought about them and prayed about them, just thinking about them filled him with joy. And he's thankful for them. So I have a challenge for you this week. In your own quiet time with the Lord, think about somebody from this church. Pick someone and pray a prayer of thanksgiving for that person. Do that every day this week. And let me, let me make it a little harder. Don't pick your buddy. Don't pick the person you get along with. Pick someone difficult. We all have different personalities. We all have different gifts. We all have different abilities. We come from different walks of life. And we, just like John Wayne and Kirk Douglas, we create friction sometimes. So I just want to challenge you, in, in, your, in the privacy of your own heart this week, pick somebody who's difficult and spend the week praying prayers of thanksgiving for that person and see what God does to your heart. We challenge you with that. I once heard a story about a gal who absolutely hated her job. She hated her job. She hated specifically the people that she worked with. She worked with, with unbelievers. It was very difficult for her to go to work. She was demotivated every time she had to go. And one day she just started praying for people on her drive to work. She prayed for the people she worked with. And over time, actually got to a point where she loved her job and loved the people because God did a work on her heart. So that's my challenge for you this morning. So be thankful for your partners, but also number two, root for your partners. Root for your partners. Paul writes in verse six, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is one of those verses we find in Philippians that we absolutely love. I'm sure most of you have this verse memorized. It's something that we go to often to encourage ourselves or maybe encourage someone else. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is a good verse. It is a good verse because it reminds us that Jesus is continually working in us. Jesus continually works in you and he continually works in me. Here's something to remember. Jesus does not leave you unfinished. Jesus does not and will not leave you unfinished. He is continually working on you and he will continue to do so until you go home to be with him in glory or until we see his return. He is continually working in you. When I was... um, when I was in college 20 years ago, I can't believe it's been that long. We had these projectors, and now, of course, today they, they, they're relics. But we had these projectors, and you would, you would take your, your, your PC, your Pentium 2, and you would hook it up to this projector, and it would cast, at first it would cast a blue image on, on the screen, and in the lower right-hand corner, it would say, perfecting the image, please wait. That's what Jesus is doing in you. Perfecting the image, please wait. I know it feels like we're waiting a long time, 
But when we see him, this life will be a blip. Perfecting the image, please wait. That's what Jesus is doing. He's working in us. We sing that song, Waymaker. Oh, that's a good song. In the bridge, it goes like this. This always pumps me up. In the bridge, it says, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. If you're tempted to give up, if you're tempted to despair, if you're tempted to think, I'm never going to change, and maybe some of you are. Maybe you're here this morning, and this week has been another struggle. This week, you've seen the same mistakes in yourself. You've seen the same faults in yourself. You've, you've succumbed to the same temptations. Maybe you walked in this room and you're just absolutely discouraged and you're tempted to think, I'm never going to change. I don't feel it. I don't see it. I don't sense the work. I'm here to tell you, he never stops. He never stops working. He's working on you. He's working on you. And just as a side, I don't know the mind of God, but sometimes when we go through those periods, those dry, despairing periods, that's Jesus pulling you into a deeper faith in him. He's probably doing 100,000 other things, but one of the things that I can tell you He's pulling you into a deeper dependence, a deeper faith on him. He never stops working, even though sometimes I don't see it, I don't feel it. You know, our biggest enemy is us. I am my biggest enemy. When it comes to my spiritual growth, I do the most damage. We might want to point the finger at other people, but really, I do the most damage when it comes to my own spiritual growth. And you know what? Paul felt the same way. This will be on the screen, Romans 7, 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Can anyone identify with that? I don't do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. I stumbled again. I fell again. I hurt someone again. I do the very thing I hate. And sometimes we're tempted to look at ourselves and think there's no hope. I am wretched. Continue reading on the screen. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is hope. His name is Jesus Christ. And he doesn't quit. He doesn't quit. It says he's going to continue and complete you till the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus, that's your glorification. That's when you're going to open your eyes and see Jesus for the first time in your resurrected body, glorified, perfect, sin, gone. Paul David Tripp wrote a book called Lead. We've been reading it as elders. And in that chapter this week, he said this, 
Your Savior is rescuing you from you or has rescued you from you, is rescuing you from you, and will continue to rescue you from you until the rescue is no longer needed. We're stuck right now in that that rescuing you from you part, present tense, but we're not going to stay there. He is going to rescue us from us until that rescue is no longer needed. So Paul shares this verse, this, this, this pinnacle verse with the Philippians because he wants them to know this. God is working on you and he won't give up. And church of God, I want you to know this. God is working on you and he won't give up. Paul is rooting for the Philippians. I am rooting for you and I'm challenging you to root for each other. Root for your partners. It's kind of an inside joke that Ryan knows nothing about sports. But believe it or not, when I was young, I did play Little League. And you know who was always there rooting for me? My dad. We get really excited about our sports, don't we? You know, if you can get really excited and root for your team, can you get really excited and root for your partner? Now, it might be kind of inappropriate to scream in their face, but I think you know what I'm saying. Don't just pray with people. I'm sorry, don't just pray for people. Pray with people. Don't just tell them, hey, I'm going to pray for you about that, but but stop and pray with them. Can I tell you kind of a, a, a fantasy of mine? You know, the elders stand up here at the end of the service and we, and we invite you to come forward and pray with you and you do, and that's great, but you know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see what, what I kind of call pockets of prayer just all through the church. Just as you're having conversations with people and, and issues come up throughout the week, just like, hey, let's stop and pray about that. That's rooting for your partner. Shooting your partner a, a text of scripture throughout the week. Hey, I remember talking to you on, on Sunday and I just want to encourage you with this verse. That's rooting for your partner. Root for your partners. Encourage our partners because Jesus is working in you. Jesus is working in all of us. And he's not going to give up. Let's encourage each other with that. Paul continues in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Be thankful for your partners, root for your partners, and thirdly, support your partners. Support your partners. He says, it is right for me to feel this way. What way? Go back to, the, to verse three, to, I'm sorry, to verse four, joy. It is right for me to be thankful and be filled with joy over you. It is right because I hold you in my heart. I'm so glad of that Greek expression, I hold you in my heart, because it's not very hard to figure out. Some Greek translations, some Hebrew, sometimes the Bible uses figures of speech, and you're scratching your head thinking, what is he talking about? But when Paul says, I hold you in my heart, oh, I got that one. We say similar things. You know, I love you with my whole heart, wholeheartedly into this. Same idea. I love you, or I, I hold you in my heart. I love you, and it's right for me to feel this way about you. For 
you are all partakers. Not the same word koinonia, but very similar. Very similar, very similar word. You're partakers. There's a participation here. You're a partner is what that's saying right there. You are a partner, a partaker with me of grace. You're a partaker with me of grace. I thought grace was something that God gave. It is. But here, Paul is using grace as a, as a way of, of, of covering the work of the gospel. He's using that word grace here. You're, you're a partaker with me of grace as showing the work of the gospel. R. Kent Hughes writes this. Grace here is not just saving grace. Rather, Paul considers suffering and sacrifice and struggling for the gospel to be grace. Paul exalts in this grace of gospel struggle and affliction that produces and sustains their affection. The work that I'm doing, Paul writes, the work that I'm doing is a work of grace. And my affection of you is so because you join me in that work. He says, you're all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He says, both in my imprisonment, my sufferings. That word imprisonment, that literally, literally means in my chains. What is likely going on with Paul, he's in prison, chained between two guards. And what he's saying here is that you are partners with me in my suffering. Though you may not be chained next to me, You know about my suffering. You hurt for me because of my suffering. You pray for me because of my suffering. You are a support to me in my suffering. And I'm here because of the continued work of the gospel. The Philippians suffered with him in the sense that they felt his pain. Have you ever been so close to somebody that when they hurt, you hurt? Every marriage should be like that, by the way. When they hurt, you hurt. You ever been talking to someone who's sharing pain and and your response is, you know, I feel you. That's what he's talking about here. There's a connection between you and me. You are sharing in my sufferings. Though you're not chained next to me, you share in my sufferings. It's an emotional sharing, and that's why I hold you in my heart. But that's not it. That's not the end of it. They share with him with their sufferings. He's remembered in their prayers. There's a bond there. They support him in that way, yes. But they take it one step further. Last week, I told you that the Philippians, at one time in Paul's ministry, the Philippians was the only church that financially supported him. And I believe that's what he's talking about here as well. You are financially supporting me in my ministry. So there's such a deep connection and affection because of how they are sharing in Paul's work of grace. Now, how does that relate to us? Quite simply, for the people in this room, we support each other in a Romans 12, 15 way. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I would say for the people in this room, for for your partners in this room, that's the main way that we support each other. You rejoice with those who rejoice. You weep with those who weep. You don't get jealous over somebody else's success. And you don't get 
glad, twisted, happy over someone else's pain. We support each other by rejoicing with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And we can take it a step further. Now, I would say in people in this room, the family in this room, the partners in this room, we don't necessarily financially support each other. But the church doesn't stop with these walls. Outside these walls, we have Christians we can financially support. And maybe you do. You have missionaries. You have parachurch ministries that you support financially. Awesome. And if God is calling you to do that, I would encourage you that way. These are ways we can support our partners. So let me call you to support each other. He says, he goes on to say in verse eight, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He brings it back to the love, the affection of Christ Jesus. Now that word affection there, I don't wanna be gross, but it literally means inward parts. My inward parts yearn for you. My inward parts feel for you. And he says, God is my witness. God knows what I'm feeling, is what he's saying there. God knows what I'm feeling. My inward parts yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, if we catch what he's saying here, it's, it's, it's radical. He's saying that I have an emotional inward yearning for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is a level of, of, of emotional love and feeling that unbelievers cannot experience. Yes, unbelievers can experience affection, absolutely. But to the level of Christ Jesus, to the level that we have been transformed in Christ Jesus, they cannot experience that. Only Christians can experience this type of affection for each other. And I would challenge you, let's get there. How? Through a lot of prayer, through a lot of putting the self aside, through a lot of seeking and putting the other person first. Somebody once said, the definition of love is you before me. And it takes time, but that's how we get there. So let me challenge you again. Pray for affection, the affection of Jesus Christ for one another. So we're thankful for our partners. We root for our partners. We support our partners. And lastly, rightly love your partners. Rightly love your partners. Paul writes, verse 9, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, this is one of those awesome run-on sentences, but it's an amazing sentence, and we need to pick it apart to really see what he's talking about here. See, it's interesting. He just got done talking about love, but Paul's not content for them to, to remain where they are in their love for each other. He's not content to say, you stop here, you're loving each other enough. He goes on to say, I want you to love each other more and more and more. 
He says, I want you to love each other more and more and more with knowledge and all discernment. What does that mean? Love you with knowledge and discernment. What's he talking about there? What he means is this. He he wants the relationships that we have to be growing in such a way that we're continually learning about the other person. It's It's a selfless, constant understanding of one another. Stephen J. Lawson writes this. Genuine love never operates in a fog. Authentic love requires penetrating discernment into the real needs of people as they find themselves in real life situations. Real knowledge means having a heart understanding of, a pers- of people's lives that perceives their deepest needs and how we can best meet those needs. Paul wants us to love with all knowledge and discernment and approve what is excellent That means distinguish how to best love. Approve what is excellent. Distinguish how to best love. In other words, let's love each other in a way that meets the needs, their needs the best. Let's love each other in a way that we actually see the real needs in somebody and we meet them the best way possible. Let me illustrate this. Let me illustrate that, that like this. Anyone ever read the, the Five Love Languages? It's a great book. Great book, The Five Love Languages. There's uh, words of affirmation, quality time, uh, touch, and some others. Five Love Languages. Five Love Languages. Have you ever tried to love somebody in a love language that wasn't theirs? You know, our tendency is, is whatever love language we are, that's how we express love. And maybe they appreciate it, but they're not feeling the love. That's what Paul's talking about, that we learn somebody so much so that we learn what communicates love to them. That's knowledge and all discernment. That's with excellence. That's when we're learning all, so much about each other that, oh, yes, he likes to be loved like this. She likes to be loved like that. That's what he's talking about, learning people and loving them the best way possible. That's what we're talking about here. And when we do that, he goes on to say, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. If our love is growing, if our relationships are growing and we're loving each other excellently as others need to be loved, as they feel loved, then the result is pure and blamelessness. The word pure here, It can be translated sincere. There's a little bit of debate on this, but what it's likely saying there, sincere, comes from a Latin phrase, sine sere, that means without wax. In the first century, if you were a dishonest pottery dealer, you might have some pottery that's got cracks in it can't sell it that way so you would fill the cracks with wax and then you would put a glaze on the piece of pottery and it would look perfect but you see it was not sinaceri it was not sincere it was not without wax and actually there was an interesting test that people could do where they would take the piece of pottery and you could hold it up to the sun and the sun would reveal the wax spots what he's saying here So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, he's saying, so you will love sincerely 
You will love without wax. You will love with perfection, not imperfection. And that's the goal. I want you to love sincerely. I want you to love, by the way, with a love that brings glory and praise to God. I want you to love with a motive of purity that brings glory and praise to God. Not love in such a way that you're building yourself up. Not love insincerely with hidden motives. Not love to feel better about yourself. But love to the glory of God. That's what he's talking about here. We don't love with motives, with selfish motives. We don't love people expecting something in return. I pat your back, you pat mine. We love sincerely. We love without wax. We love in such a way that God gets the glory no matter what we get back, if we get anything at all. That's what he's calling us to love here. We love in a way that brings glory to Jesus Christ. Warren Wearsby writes this, the fruit tree does not make a great deal of noise when it produces its crop. It merely allows the life within to work in a natural way. The fruit is the result. The difference between the spiritual fruit and human religious activities, a.k.a. loving with wax, is that the fruit brings glory to Jesus Christ. In other words, this should be natural. Our loving each other should be something just as natural as the fruit growing on the tree with the only motive to glorify Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, are you loving your partners in such a way that you're not bragging on yourself? Are you loving your partners in such a way that your motives are pure, not because you're expecting something in return? Rightly loving our, our partners is selflessly growing in relationships that discern and meet true needs for the glory of God. I'm going to say that again. Rightly loving our partners is selflessly growing in relationships that discern and meet true needs for the glory of God. Now, how do we do that? Well, on one hand, and I'm going to challenge you in this, one hand, you got to get to know each other. And that takes T-I-M-E. It takes time. But let me challenge you to get to know each other. And only by getting to know each other can we learn each other's needs and meet those needs with the right motives to glorify God. Now, I said on one hand, it takes time. But there's something else. You might be thinking to yourself, this is a high calling of love. To love my partners, even the people in the room I don't like, to love them, to be thankful for them, root for them, to support them, and to rightly love them, that's a high calling. In fact, you might be tempted to think, I can't do that. I know my own heart. I love with selfish motives. I think in the back of my mind, I do something for somebody with the back of my mind thinking something selfish, that I want them to do something for me, or I want to be, get the glory for this. I want to be seen by other people. You might be thinking in the back of your mind, you know what? I'm that broken pot. I love with wax. I love insincerely. I know my heart. I can't do this. I can't either. 
This is too high. I'm challenging you today to love your partners in such a way that you and I can't do. But there is one who did. There is one who did and does love to the high calling that we've been called to love. You might think you're a broken pot, and you are, and so am I. But there is one who fills the broken parts with his blood. There is one who washed you clean and is continually working in you for completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There is one. His name is Jesus. And he is continually working in you so that this kind of love is possible. And only through him can we love our partners well. And the more we believe that, and the more we know that, and the more we get this gospel message of Jesus Christ into our lives, the more cracks he's going to fill. And it's a lifelong process. But it is possible only through Jesus Christ. You and I can love each other through the work of Jesus Christ. In 1966, Simon and Garfunkel got it wrong. We're not islands. Yes, I'm going to agree with them that vulnerability in relationships is risky and often painful. But isolation, not living as partners, is far more harmful to your spiritual growth. A hundred years earlier, Sabine Baring Gould penned these words. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. With the cross of Jesus going on before, Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe, forward into battle. See his banner go. At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voice, loud your anthem raise. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided. All one body we. One in hope and doctrine. One in charity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are good. You are good. You have called us to a high calling.
you have called us to a partnership of the gospel, to a partnership of love that is quite frankly impossible without you. Teach us how to love each other. Teach us how to be partners who love each other well. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.